This podcast is part of the C-Suite Radio Network, turning the volume up on business. Hello, and welcome to the Plugged In Podcast, where we talk with founders and CEOs in order to bring you the real stories of failures and triumphs, highs and lows they've experienced on their journey toward success. We will go in-depth with our guests to give you insights into how they have taken an idea from concept to realization, making those first key hires to building the right team, scaling revenues, how they overcame obstacles, and much more as we learn how they achieve success. This is the podcast that you want to subscribe to if you want to learn how to succeed. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Plugged In. I'm Ellie Mandelbaum, an industry veteran who decided to do more than just listen to podcasts, but actually start one in which I interview people much smarter than me. In this episode, we are speaking with Gil Ayal, CEO of Hyper, a leader in the influencer uh, marketing platforms. He has grown the firm from a humble beginning since its launch in 2013. Under his direction, Hyper has built a client base of some of some 200 Fortune 500 brands and the biggest advertising and PR agencies, including LVMH, White Wave, Mediacom, Michael Kors, Calvin Klein, and Revlon. Before opening Hyper's doors, I was the CEO of an early entry into uh, the photo sharing app, um, which where I met Gail at Mobley, um, which is a long time ago, um, drawing in over 20 million users and trailblazing the early influencer marketing space to recruit and work with uh, more than 120 celebrities, including stars like Leonardo DiCaprio when he was a lot younger, Tobey Maguire, a lot younger, <laughs> Pitbull, Lance Armstrong before the scandal, uh, Tola Wayne, Serena Williams, uh, and so on and so forth. It is this experience that opened IAL's eyes to the untapped potential of influencer marketing, launching Hyper to provide tools to analyze celebrity and influencer audiences. Um, Gil, welcome to the show. I hope I covered everything. Uh, there was a lot in there. If not, why don't you fill, us, fill in the blanks uh, on your background? Thanks for having me. It's exciting. And uh, it's kind of funny. I'm waiting for the day where somebody reads that list and somebody's <laughs> like, who? Uh, well, it doesn't seem like it's that, that far off. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of got, I, I was a digital marketer my, uh, the years that were before joining Mobley. And I joined Mobley as a digital marketer. Um, and it was an early player. Our first app was on, on BlackBerry. And as you can imagine, there weren't many channels to advertise. I, I just want to stop. I think that's the first time BlackBerry was actually mentioned on one of my podcasts. Really? So <laughs> I'm already 21 in. So Well, it was uh, probably the last time anybody <laughs> built an app on that platform because it was very difficult to do. And um, it wasn't very uh, um, easy to market because there were no channels. There were no advertising networks on mobile. And we came up with this idea that we could promote it by getting really popular people to be on it and create content on our app. And that app, which was kind of like Instagram, but different, um, people would then come in to consume that content and be incentivized to keep coming back again and again. And what I did was I started working on getting celebrities on board. And uh, I was lucky at the time, uh, it was right when Facebook and Twitter were about to go public. And everybody was like, what? all the celebrities in the world were like, I, I bring in all the traffic to Facebook. and. And uh, Twitter, where's my check? And how come I'm not getting a check? And it was a big <laughs> opportunity for me to say, hey, join the next big thing. Unfortunately, Instagram ended up winning the market. But we did a lot of these deals. And being a digital marketer myself, I was very numbers-oriented. I kept trying to evaluate, how well is this working? Is it, you know, I didn't have any tools. There was no way to understand which audiences I was reaching. Were they converting? And we, even without those tools, it immediately became apparent that these old school celebrities were nowhere near as effective as these guys I found online who had popular YouTube channels who had big Twitter accounts um, that cost a lot less to activate, but were doing a lot better. 
So when I left the company, um, that was my goal. I said, I have this understanding that there's, there are 5,000 really popular, really big people out there, but then there are millions of smaller people that are influential in some way, and those people are um, accessible and, and, and discoverable thanks to the social networks. We can see who's at the center of conversations. And I might not be influential at all about anything, but when I talk about basketball, for some reason, people listen to me because I work at ESPN or, or what I don't mm-hmm. know. Anyway. But um, it really applies to everyone. And it goes to this core understanding as human beings that we make decisions based on the people we respect and the people that we care about. So it got me thinking that there's an opportunity away from the really, really big names. Yes, they're always going to be hired by the big brands. They're always going to be hard to work with. They're going to demand all these terms. You have to work with their lawyer. They have to work with their attorney. But there is a whole other side of this world of commodities, of people that are just waiting for brands that they like to engage with them. And that's what Hyper's eureka moment was. Mm-hmm. Got it. So... And we're going to get more into Hyper in, in a few minutes, but let's go back a bit um, to the beginning. So how did you get started in your career? I was, uh, so, so I was born in Israel when I was four. I moved uh, to the U.S. with my parents. I graduated high school here, and I volunteered for the Israeli Army, where I served as a computer crimes investigator. I was one of the earliest people in the unit. It sounds uh, kind of like uh, Sandra Bullock in the net, but this was uh, <laughs> mid-'90s. Uh, computer crimes were like, you know, you... you you put in an illegal copy of a computer game on, <laughs> on the computer. But, but we did have a few kids, and, and, and it got me to this place where um, trying to solve stuff around computers was really exciting to me and understanding how complex it could be. It got me to be very inquisitive. But I graduated school. I went to be a lawyer because I come from a good Jewish home, and my, <laughs> my mom already had a computer scientist at home. So I worked as a lawyer for about six years, and I, I liked it, but I didn't love it. And decided to come here and uh, get my MBA went to the Kellogg School of Business and started working as a digital marketer. Mm-hmm. Um, initially for a company called Playdom, which developed games on MySpace and uh, Facebook, but we were the biggest developer on MySpace, which, you know, I, uh, just like uh, BlackBerry later in my career, it meant a, it, on the wrong platform. It, it meant a lot for like a yeah. month. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, sometimes it's picking the right platform is a big deal, and uh, 0 for 2, and I wasn't that senior in the company, so the $750 million that Disney paid for it, not, not a lot of that ended up coming to me, but it was a great experience and, and a real understanding of how, how what looks like a company that sells games is really an analytics company and how analytics really affected our business and drove 40 million people to play Playdom's games. And that's kind of affected the way I think about everything, including influencers. Got it. And so that was it. my next question, which you just answered is, what was, you know, um, what, what did you learn from your first job that stuck with you? And it's, it's analytics, it seems. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the understanding that um, when you go large scale, when you, when you have large groups, things start to become predictable or easy to test with A-B testing or with the ability to understand how, tip, how typically people react to something or how changing one small thing can affect the way people um, behave. And um, that wasn't available in this world of celebrities. So you, you get the whole package when you hire Kim Kardashian. You can't say, okay, I only want your North American audience who are female, who care about beauty, and that log into Instagram every two days. You can't do that. But if you go micro, you can find a lot of smaller influencers that have only that audience because they're not as big. You know, they, they don't get recommended when you log into the platform. So with them, you can do a lot more, and those analytics become really important in the way that you analyze and discover which influencers you should be work with, and then measure whether or not they perform well for you. 
Yeah, uh, agreed. And so what was something that you failed at early on that bothered you and, and had you overcome it? Failed at? Uh, well, failed such at. a long list to choose from. Um, something that stands out. Getting girls to go out with me. Uh, <laughs> Sports, Sports. <laughs> uh, growing hair. Um, no, but if we talk about real stuff, uh, stuff that matters for real, I mean, I was not a natural fundraiser. It was very hard for me to raise money. It took me more than two years to raise money for, for Hyper, and it was a very, very um, challenging environment where people would tell me that it would never work, and my fragile ego, I would go home, my stomach would turn, and if I knew I had a meeting with an investor... Um, I would literally not sleep the night before. And if they canceled on me, I'd almost feel like relief sometimes because um, people were questioning the very base of this idea back in 2012, 13, when I was starting to pitch it. Um, and people were looking at you like you, like at me, like I was a little crazy. And I kind of, you know, the thing I learned about, you know, from this the most, we ended up getting funding. Uh, you know, we haven't sold the company for a billion dollars yet, but we've made some nice progress. And, um, the lesson there was that if you're, 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 if you're trying to be innovative, if you're doing something other people haven't done, then people are going to look at you funny and they're going to say you're crazy because if it's obvious, if everybody's going to get it, then somebody's already doing it. And if not, they're going to do it in a second and you're not going to really have an edge. If you can understand something that other people haven't figured out yet, that's when they're going to look at you funny. So it's kind of this counterintuitive situation where... It's very disheartening. It's for someone like me who can lose their confidence with enough people tell them, no, it was a very challenging situation. And, you know, I kept going. Thankfully, I had the support around me and, and this drive to do this. Um, but it's definitely part of it. Like when I, when I meet with young entrepreneurs and they tell me, you know, this investor was a jerk. He didn't get anything. And I said, maybe he was a jerk. I don't know. But the fact that he didn't get any get it, it doesn't mean it's wrong. Maybe it's wrong. Maybe he knows something you don't, but also maybe you know something they don't. You're the expert on this subject. And if you really, really believe in it, and then look for other sources of confirmation, not just the VC. Look for somebody who's willing to pay for it. Look for people who aren't your friends and family's reactions when they hear about it. And, and, and really put yourself to the test in a way that tells you the answer. Are people really getting excited about what I'm building? And... It may be that VCs don't get your business, um, or maybe they need a while before they'll get your business. But does the market respond to you in the way that you want to? And when, when I would, would tell about Hyper to people from the market, I could see their eyes light up. In the market? Yeah. So, you know, you came to Hyper via mobile, right? So mobile, mm -hmm. you, know, what, you know, pretty much went out. You know, and then you're saying to yourself, what, that there's an opportunity I don't want to miss out and let's just build a platform and start it? Yeah. So Mobley had kept on going without me. It was about to raise money from um, Carlos Slim. That's uh, right. That's right. I yeah. had, um, at that point, you know, Instagram was very, very dominant. It seemed to me like in order to stay relevant in the market, we would have to make a really big turn which the management didn't want to do. And uh, so we parted ways nicely. Uh, they continued in what they were doing. And I was kind of free to go, um, uh, you know, unemployed. <laughs> and you, you, didn't, you didn't have access to Carlos Slim? <laughs> I did not have, never met Carlos Slim in my life. Um, I wasn't involved in that. I was doing the celebrity stuff. Uh, uh -huh. None of the celebrities were, um, you know, expressed too much concern for the fact that I was leaving. So kind of left me in this place where, um, I was looking for what to do, and I had this idea, and I was like, how do I implement it? 
and I got lucky. I was visiting uh, Israel, and I was um, and I was introduced to this guy named Guy Tamir, who later on became my co-founder at Hyper, and he was the uh, course commander for Mamram, which is the unit that trains programmers for the Israeli army. So he brought with him not just expertise um, as a partner in like how to build this and everything, but also a really good network of talented developers. He knew which of the students were the best ones. Mm-hmm. So um, he, you know, I sold him on the concept and we started the company together and became uh, partners and we've been partners ever since. Um, he's running the R&D team in Israel. I'm running the business operation here in New York, but for a long time, it was just the two of us. And I think, you know, just like marriage, uh, you really got to get lucky. You know, you meet somebody, they look great, they look nice, but people change over years, times get harder, and, and you need to find somebody that really stick with you, and I got really lucky on that end. You know, and so I won twice, you know, in, in, real, in, in real life and in business. Uh, and you got to make sure that you find somebody who's going to be that way with you. You're, I mean, you're right. Yeah. Priorities shift, especially with co-founders. Yeah. You know, sometimes, you know, you start the same and, you know, it just, you know, you, yeah. you could fluctuate, but you need to, well, your, 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 your objectives have to stay the same. Yeah, and there was a period where for eight months where neither one of us took a salary out. You know, that's, that's a really difficult period of keeping people believing. And, you know, thankfully, he's the kind of guy who doesn't give up easily. He's probably... Uh, um, I would, you know, I, I'm, I'm probably the guy who needs that extra nudge more than he does. And um, we pushed through it and finding the right person who's not going to be negative, who's going to be positive, who's going to see the opportunity was a really big win for us. So when did you start seeing traction with it, right? So you left, mm-hmm. you left, you, you, you found your, your, your co-founder, started mm-hmm. building out. And, you know, the platform, what it is now is not the same as what it yeah. started. Right, so when you started, you know, walk us through a bit, you know, had your first, you know, campaign, right, was yeah. campaign-based. Right, so you had to go and find someone that wanted to access yeah. some celebrity to drive traffic. So and that couldn't have been easy. It's never easy for a startup to do. It's, it, it was hard, but on the other hand, for me, what happened is I had built a reputation as the guy who can get celebrities to work with startups, and there was a big demand for it. There's only one problem. Startups don't have a lot of money. So yeah, we got we got a lot of stuff. We, we were busy, but we, we didn't really have make much money off of it. And um, I got this reputation. So my name, because of the Mobley stuff, but I think it goes further than that. You know, one of the things that I learned from that stage was that uh, I remember during that stage, it was really tough. You know, everything's on paper going really well. We have like 20 clients and we're stretched to service them, and we're still not making real money, you know, and mm-hmm. um, I'm trying to think about how do I scale this business, how do I make it something bigger, and I, I happened to catch this interview, an old interview of Mark Zuckerberg on TV, and it was an interview of the first time he went on TV when he just started The Facebook, okay. and the one thing that was clear from that interview is that he had no idea what Facebook would be down the road, and um, I think it's during that time and during... Um, the years that followed that I became, it became very clear to me that um, startup is exploration. And very, very few to none um, of the founders end up doing exactly what they thought they would do. You know, the first sometimes months, sometimes years, sometimes decades are done exploring um, and finding who's going to pay and what people really want. And I thought the problem was that people didn't know how to connect to celebrities and, and influencers, and that was wrong. That's actually not a really big problem. That's a really easy thing to do. You just need to get the guts to do it, because they're on the other end and they're waiting for opportunities. 
The problem was finding the right ones. The problem was evaluating. The problem was that there were millions of them, and how do I know which ones are the ones that I need to find? And for that to click, it, it took us a year or so of trying to sell connections. And I think most of the industry was trying to sell connections for a very, very long time. And we see a lot of companies that didn't survive because of that. I, I, correct. I, I totally hear that. So, you know, you, you went out and what was your first campaign that you did? Was it, uh, do you remember? Yeah, I, the first major campaign we did was for a company, I won't say their name, but they had a um, very cool product, actually, that allowed you to send uh, different files or emails um, on the web and set a rule behind them. So they self-destruct within a certain amount of time or they... Um, only, only the people you listed will ever be able to open them, these kind of things. And it, was, you know, it had a, uh, a lot of use cases, um, uh, and, and it was a very interesting company. Um, they had some money, and I had this idea, which they were very opposed to initially, which said, if you get girls from Instagram to share their photos on there and say the photos they can't share on Instagram, that's going to create a lot of hype. And the, the guy wasn't crazy about the idea, but the met we did say we did one or two, and the the conversion was beyond you know off the charts because yeah you know if you're following somebody on Instagram uh, because of how she looks and she says to you this is I can't share all of my stuff on Instagram this is where I'm sharing it you're gonna go on that platform and so it was very very effective we we then on scaled it to what they really wanted to do which was law firms and consultants, but it got them that initial user boost and then the numbers that helped them raise money and everything. But it was, it was to me, a really interesting case of how you can use influencers to, um, without spending a dollar on advertising, to boost and get numbers and get really engaged users. By the way, all those users came back all the time because there's new content for them to consume. And on the other hand, by the way, at the same time we did this game with, with a bunch of influencers, um, we helped this company that represented them. They wanted to do a game. And they said, put the influencers in the game. Don't have them promoted on social media. And um, it was really big. I won't say the names of the influencers. Really, really big influencers. And they were kind of skeptic at first. And they said, let's do this. And the game was number one in the app store. Uh, sorry, number two in the app store behind Snap at the time. Because Snap was like on fire. Mm -hmm. uh, just based on the fact that these influencers were saying, send me pictures of you playing with me on the screen. And it went insane. So we were doing the, we we were doing well. The problem was that we were becoming creative, and by becoming creative, we couldn't sell the same thing to everyone. I had to strategize with the clients. I had to think about how to make it work. If I wasn't there, nobody could replace it. So we had to shift our business to that. So so you realize so, so you realize that was a problem for you. Yeah, I didn't want to be an agency. Now that, now that there's no business there, but I didn't think I could become big enough that way. Got it. Interesting. And most people see that as a good when they when they're seeing the the type of we generated uh, several million dollars that year, and we killed that entire business. Did you do you look back and say it's a shame? Or? Oh my goodness, it was the worst year of my life. <laughs> you know how much stress it is to get these campaigns going. The influences don't show up. Some of them are you know um, don't perform. It's a whole story. So, so, so. I mean, let's. If you don't mind, let's talk yeah. about that. So, your revenue model on that, right? So, you, you have an influencer, you have a camp, you know, advertiser, and what you're being paid a flat fee. You're being paid yeah. a per per you know cost of, per acquisition. You know, it, it. I mean, how did it work? And what did you, when did you realize? Okay, you know what? Even though we're making a lot of money, 
long term, it's just not scalable. Well, we're not keeping a lot of money, right? So the way it would work is they would pay us the whole cost of the campaign, and then we would run it for them. And if everything worked out, we would probably keep like 30%. But nothing always worked out, right? So the influencers were late. There was something happened, something this, something that. We had to buy and get a new influencer. And by the time the other influencer gave us the money back, there was all kinds of mess with it. And we ended up like making a very small profit on it. And it just, I was like, this, unless there's automation in the space, it's just not going to work. But the space wasn't ready for automation. Um, I think it's getting there today, but this was 2013, 2014, still very early on in the space. All right, so we're, we're going to move on now to fundraising, right? So mm -hmm. you, 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 have not, you haven't raised a big amount, right? You've raised... Yeah, we've raised... Uh, I mean, we raised more than $5 million. Does that count as big? That's not big. No, no. Are you making me an offer? Yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, think, I mean, I think you raised, what, 13 today? No, no, we raised about nine. Nine. Oh, okay, so so nine million today. I mean, and that's and you. I mean, that's really not a lot of money in today's terms. I mean, yeah. So you've been self-sustaining and profitable. We, we and, haven't been profitable. But we've been like hovering on the verge of profitability because okay. we do want to invest in growth. Um, so we kind of there's a lot of massaging the the spend to the areas that need it the most right now. Got it. Okay. And how how hard? So you, you, I I know you didn't like fundraising. No. And that was how how long did it take for you to get your first round? So for me to get my first round was really interesting. I I um, really struggled with it. I'm not the kind of guy who can uh, like create this false sense of urgency and get a bunch of people to like fight over it. And I came here to the World Trade Center. I met this guy named Charlie Fetterman, who I was introduced I, I to. Yeah. yeah. And. Um, they had just started SilverTech, which was like a, a program for, it wasn't an invest an investment vehicle, but it was a program for early startups. And I, I was pitching him and I, I, don't, I can't for sure say this is true, but in, in the way I remember the story, I was like, if this guy doesn't like it, I'm done. <laughs> right? That's how I remember it. Maybe, yeah. maybe it's not true. But I, I came in and I, and I, and I was introduced to a super nice guy. Um, there was a guy named, there was another guy in the room named Guy Poré, who was working with us at the time. He was a consultant to the company. He's a great guy too. And um, he had made the introduction, and we come, we sit in front of Charlie. I show him the presentation. Charlie's like, can you get up? I get up. And he sits in front of my computer and starts changing the presentation in front of me. <laughs> and for five minutes, there's silence, and he's changing the presentation. And I am thinking to myself, um, what's going on here? And he doesn't say anything. And then he looks at me, and he says, no, this is good. This is good. If I didn't like it, I wouldn't be changing your presentation. I just, I just have a question for you. Like, are we building a business for you and your family, or are we, like, building for Gil's grandkids and their grandkids and their grandkids? And I said, mm, I think I'm going to go, I don't know, I'm not very good with these questions, but I'm going to go with number two, you know, <laughs> the lots of money option. Yeah. So he said, well, you know, the, the way you're structuring this, I don't think uh, you're going to raise a lot of capital, and I don't think you're going to make it a really big business. But if we make a few changes, I think we could do something together. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. So he gave me his spiel. He's very good. Uh, if you know, it takes him like two, three sentences and you get it. He's not a guy who says a lot of words, but you get it. And um, we, uh, I went and he said, go home for the weekend, come back Monday at 8 a.m. I'm sitting here with my partner, Talker, who's president of Silverstein Properties, and another great guy named Robert uh, Mai, who was at the time running a family office uh, named Clinton Fields, who's become a great partner of ours as well. And he said, you pitch them. If they like it, then we'll, we'll help you out. If they don't like it, then uh, it was nice to know you. Yeah. So I work on this the whole weekend, back and forth with Charlie. He's been great. He's answering. Like, you send him something, you get an answer like, within a second. And you can see he's very engaged, really cares. 
and I show up uh, at Monday and at 8 a.m. and I walk in and um, Robert honestly says to me, um, hey Gil, you know, it's nice to meet you and Charlie has great things to say about you. I just want you to know, I, I typically don't invest in these kinds of businesses and I just want to be fair with you and tell you up front. And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm, I have an uphill battle here <laughs> in this room. Yeah. Um, and I did the pitch and, you know, I think at the end of the pitch, they kind of, they did like it. Um, Talon and, and Robert were kind of exchanging glances and thinking about discussing it. And then Charlie said, well, what are you guys thinking? And Robert said, I, you know, I really like it. I just have had bad experience with businesses that sell to agencies and, and you know, it looks like, you know, I, I really like Gil. I really like what he presented. I can totally see this becoming really big. Um, and Charlie said, you know, I look at an insight. And, and at the end of the day, what, what caught me about what Gil had was this insight where everybody's treating these celebrities uh, these influencers as celebrities and they're paying them too much and they're chasing after them and they're fighting over them. Gil's coming here and saying to us, uh, there are millions of micro-influencers you can access and I can build you the Google that's going to find them and I can build you the AdWords that's going to activate them. I can build you the analytics that's going to measure them. And I don't think we're going to see a lot of opportunities like this. And th those, that was pretty much, I, I, I'm not as eloquent as he is. Mm -hmm. he said. That's pretty much the gist of what he said. And I think after he said that, um, Robert said, uh, Robert and Tal both looked at each other and they said, Charlie, do you believe in this? And Charlie said, I believe in this. I think there's something here. And they said, well, you know, you haven't steered us wrong. If you believe in this, we believe in this. Gil, you have your first million dollars and let's go raise some more. Because I was going to raise one and a half million. We ended up raising about five million dollars in that round. Mm -hmm. um, thanks to um, these those three really opening up their um, Rolodex to me and and putting the weight of their connections. So, so, so having Charlie, the valued investor, was yeah. was. And he's been involved. He's still involved. He's right down the hall. Yeah. Um, he's involved every day. And folks at Silverstein Tech, great people. I know. I know. I work with yeah. Tal. Mm -hmm. Great people. I know Charlie too. Yeah. So and, and Larry is the third partner. Is also great. Yeah. Interesting. So you know. Okay. So. But then you, you you've been generating revenue, right? So you started. I think it. I was. Well, reading. we killed. We killed our business. We did. We started over. You started over once was after the round. Subscription business from that point on. SaaS, no more campaigns, zero campaigns. So two thousand. It was May two thousand fifteen. We had a few campaigns we had to finish. Two thousand sixteen, zero campaign revenue. Only subscriptions. Uh, so how hard was it to shift? I mean, if you, you went from zero to, z I mean, from, let's say, from 100 million to zero. To zero. And then you had to build everybody up. And who, so who is your base then, right, for the SaaS model? Was it advertisers, agencies, you know, who was it? Yeah. So we were shooting, we were trying everywhere. There were four core clients that we worked with at the time, advertising and PR agencies, um, brands, um, publishers, and um, it and influencer marketing platforms who connected to our API and bought data from us. What happened, unfortunately, was the publishers went through a really tough time and, um, and influencer marketing platforms, many of them died. You know, they didn't offer enough value. So those two became not very sustainable business models uh, for us. And even though they liked the platform, a lot of them had to churn because they were no longer around or they didn't have the money. Um, and we ended up focusing on brands and agencies um, right now, and then moving up upstream. So today we primarily service the bigger players um, with the idea that 
there's a lot more room to growth with them. There's a lot more to offer them. And they spend a lot more on influencers. Um, in my vision, someday when it's fully automated, I'll service everyone. But right now, that's where we're focused. And so did you find being first mover advantage, was that valuable for you? I mean, how critical was that? And do you, you view know, yourself as a first mover? So I definitely don't think I'm a first mover, mover in the concept of, you know, endorsement or influencers. I think it's been around for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. You know, Jennifer Aniston with Smartwater, Michael Jordan with um, Nike Shoes, uh, um, Britney Spears with Pepsi, and, uh, you know, the list goes on forever and ever. We're, we're there before. I think what we... And then in the idea of people on social networks... Um, it's okay. Uh, the idea of people in uh, sorry, there's some background. We'll, 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 we'll try and edit that out. Yeah. Should we let it? No, uh, that's fine. Okay. So with the idea of uh, social networks, the um, companies like Clouds had already been there. You know, they thought about it, but they thought about it differently than we did. On Cloud, you got a score, but we cared about context. Like my score was a 58 on Cloud, which I don't know how they calculated it. And I don't know how that applies, because if you talk to me about, I don't know, uh, basketball, maybe I'm an expert and I and people listen to me. Probably not, because I don't know anything. <laughs> and if you talk to me about um, Hungary in uh, Africa, then I know what I read on the news. I have no influence on it. You know, I contribute a little bit, and that's it. And so what we wanted was a system that actually looks at all those people's um, interactions online, who they follow, who follows them. It looks a lot like the Google model, which is outgoing link, incoming link, to understand who's really at the center of conversations about different topics and what audiences listen to them. And that is living and breathing and updates all the time. And that's where we were a first mover, I think. The second was this understanding that when you have a lot of alternatives for every influencer, they become a commodity. And if they're a commodity, then you can dictate the terms. It's not like working with Kim Kardashian and she's going to walk away if you don't do what she says. It's okay. We have a thousand options. Here's $200. Oh, $200 is not enough. Okay. Well, we'll go to two, three, four, five. And if I can automate that, then I bring a lot of value to the brands mm-hmm. because those brands can now easily discover very quickly, easily find the ones that are actually willing to work with them, and then easily measure their performance. Got it. And so, you know, Let's move on a second. I mean, so, you know, you you have your SaaS model now. And, you know, how long did it take for you to realize that you didn't make a mistake? You know. Uh, Ask me again in five years. Uh, (laughs) No, I didn't make a mistake. You know, when I, the, the first kind of confirmation we didn't make a mistake was when a lot of these people used to, when you're, when you're a founder, you'll get this all the time. You'll walk in and people say, oh, but these guys are doing this and, and they've been here for, you know, two years already. You're, you're, you're. You're late in the game. And then you see all those guys start to drop. They get aqua-hired. They get they shut down. They go down from 80 people to 10 people. And you start realizing that that model that they were working that you didn't believe in um, doesn't work. And so I think that was the first boost of confidence that we got. While concurrently, people are willing to pay a subscription. People are willing to use the platform the way that we want to do it. So something here is happening that's effectively helping us. I, I met a guy named Brian Berger early on at the time. He's like a... Um, he was, uh, he's like a big word of mouth guy, but he's also kind of agency royalty. Mm-hmm. His dad sold a big agency to Havas. And, um, I showed it to him and he got it right away. And I said, do you think people will pay for this like in that way? And he said, yeah, they will pay for this in that way. And they will beg you not to go away because you're saving them this and this and this. And I had never stepped foot in an agency before. Mm-hmm. 
So meeting Ryan, and Ryan is one of our, you know, he runs our, uh, uh, a big part of our, our business development team and is one of the biggest salespeople today. Um, introduced me to somebody who's been in the agency world and was knew that they would spend money and was able to walk in with me and ask for that check and walk out with that check. So um, I started getting the idea that we're definitely moving in the right direction. The, the road is long. I mean, if you speak to me in two years, we might, be doing, we might be pivoting again as we learn new stuff. Right now, it seems like we're, you know, of the different paths the companies in the space have chosen, we, we feel good about what we've chosen. But who knows? So how many employees do you have now? We have 25 right now, uh, 11 in Israel, 14 here, like 26, one in London. Oh, got it. And do you find it challenging, Israel and the U.S., um, different yeah. offices, different teams? I mean, teams? it would be nice to have everyone in the same place at some point because you get bigger. It's got a lot of advantages. I mean, sometimes, you know, we need something, we'll, we'll go to sleep, they can keep working on it, we'll wake up in the morning, it's done. It's great. Uh, it gives me an excuse to go uh, to Israel <laughs> to uh, often. Uh, not that often, but when I do go, it gives me an excuse to go. And um, there's a, for us, it's a really big talent advantage because the fact that Guy was a commander of that course and hundreds of students were under his wings means that when we're looking for someone, he'll start in his own Rolodex and we'll either know them or they'll recommend somebody, but we don't have to go through the traditional hiring process of, of hoping somebody can answer some questions and do well. Um, it's definitely hard. I mean, it's hard to con- convey everything we hear from the clients to Israel when they're not here all the time. So it, it presents challenges as well. And you have, you have are you service worldwide in terms of your customers? Um, yeah, I think the the... Um, only country we don't service today is uh, North Korea. North Korea. Yeah. And it's easy because there's only one influencer. So <laughs> if you don't know him, <laughs> yeah. you're not going to do it with working. Um, yeah, we have uh, uh, globally. And, and, and are you worried about scaling? Yes, uh, definitely worried about scaling. I think there's more competition in this space. I think customers are becoming more sophisticated. I think more and more compelling offerings are coming out. And there's a question, you know, influencer marketing, how big can it get? Um, so all these things kind of guide how we build our product and how we focus on solving problems for clients. And we just sent out a survey to 30,000 people who've, who've ever um, engaged with the Hyper Demo to ask them what they want to see. And the answers we got were really interesting. Some of the things we, we knew, and it was very obvious, you know, people want automation, people want to pay by success. Those things are just obvious. But then there were things that really, really impressed us, you know, people no matter how much data you throw at them, they're still going to want to look at the photos and decide if they like the content that this influencer created. And it's very interesting because, you know, if you're a Zynga or if you're um, an e-commerce site, you should be caring about C- you know, cost per sale, not CPMs or CPCs. Yeah. And yet still a major decision-making thing is do they like the content that they see? And it's really interesting. Interesting. And... You know, in terms of uh, people using your platform, how, how many? I mean, if you could say, how many companies do you have on the platform now? Slightly less than five hundred. Five hundred. Okay, yeah. interesting. And how long did it? T- how long? You know, what's the sales cycle? I mean, they come, you go. <laughs> how, how do you market to them? Are you? Yeah. We're very picky. We only we we ask. So you can. There are a few ways you could be meet hyper. The most common is that you've heard about hyper somewhere, and you log in and you sign up for a demo. It's probably the biggest driver of uh, customers. We don't advertise. We, we might start now. We haven't spent a dollar on advertising, uh, meaning you won't see hyper banners on, yeah. on Facebook or on. And the reason is because that drives a ton of influencers. 
So you may be paying a, a 10 cents per click, but you're really paying a dollar for an actual relevant lead. Um, and I'm, I'm, those numbers are way off. It's really like <laughs> 50 times that. Yeah. So um, the problem for us was that it, we haven't found any channels that really provided good returns for us. Something we're constantly evaluating. But what that means is that we go out and get our clients. And we only the first thing we ask them is how much you plan on spending on influencer marketing and do you have your own influencer marketing team? If the answer is no, or if they don't plan on spending at least $200,000 a year, then we just refer them to somebody else because we say, look, we're not going to be able to help you. Hyper is a platform for people who want to bring this knowledge in-house, the experts. So we kind of stunned our growth, but we have really high quality clients who really know what they're doing and that, that helps on the other ends. Interesting. All right, so... Oh, you have the sales cycle? Yeah. Anywhere right. from a year to two, from a day to two years, <laughs> sorry, from a day to two years, day to two years. on average four months. Okay. Okay. So, what was the most difficult decision you had to make? You know, as CEO, if there, I'm sure there's a number of them, but one that stuck out. One that stuck out as a difficult decision. I'm not the kind of guy who looks back. Meaning, I might debate, I might deliberate a lot, but once it, it's done, I might say, "Oh, that was a mistake. I shouldn't have done that." But I don't like. I don't spend time. Um, regretting it. I think there are definitely things in the product that I should have figured out sooner. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I have a good answer to that question. I don't think... I think there are lots of difficult questions. Don't, don't become a startup founder if you don't want to deal with difficult <laughs> questions or if you're uncomfortable with making a decision without 100% knowing. Mm-hmm. It's kind of just an overall difficult... I hear that. So, is are there any uh, management skills that you find effective that you like? You know, yeah, you know? <laughs> it's a good question. Um, yeah, typically, well, the way we look at it um, is we don't hire on resume; we hire on motivation. I found that to be the number one uh, indicator of how good somebody's going to do their job. There are this is a general thing. Obviously, if you're going to be a coder, you need to know how to code. Mm-hmm. So if you if you know how to do stuff and you're really motivated, then you're you're going to do well at a company like Hyper. And um, for me, it's really about getting people to be really excited to come here. We actually just hired head of fun at Hyper. I know it's that's not the actual head, <laughs> head of corporate culture and yeah. blah blah blah. Her job is to make sure that the employees are happy. Um, we have won, you know, some awards for that, but but I want to make sure we keep doing that. And so what I found was that happy employees work harder, happy, they own, you know, they, they all have equity in the company. They own part of the company. They feel like it's theirs. They're loyal to the company. Um, they're upset when somebody else isn't pulling their weight. And that's the kind of environment we want to have. We want people to really be excited to come here, feel like it's my company. It's not, I don't work for Hyper. I'm part of Hyper. Hyper and I are part of the same. Um we can't compete with the Googles and the Facebooks. We're not going to offer them the, the perks of, you know, I don't know, tricycles in the office yeah. or whatever it is that's, that's now the coolest thing. Um, but we can offer them a place where they feel fulfilled, where they feel empowered to make decisions. You're never going to hear anybody say, walk into a meeting and say, well, I, I, I decided to do something with a customer and it didn't work out well. And somebody's going to say to them, why did you do that? They're empowered to make decisions, and the idea is that, yeah, look, if the decision didn't work out, let's think about it together. But you are on the spot. You're not going to have to call your boss mm-hmm. to ask for it because you're a smart person. If you weren't a smart person, you wouldn't be here. And you're in, in charge of this role. You're in charge of succeeding in this role, and you're closer to the client. You're closer to what's happening there, what's going to help if you ask me. So we learn together, but it's okay to make mistakes, and... 
we want to give people responsibility because responsibility really gets people um, committed, accomplished. And so you'll find people who are 24 years old, 26 years old, handling companies that are, you know, on the Fortune 100 list. And they're their main content. Interesting. Got oh. Doing it very well. Which is, you know, what you want to see. Yeah. Right? Because of motivation, because of caring. Excellent. So, um, you know, moving, moving on, we're, we're winding down too now. So what separates you guys from the market? I mean, is, yeah. is, there, is there a separation? Like, do you feel that yeah. you're separating yourself, that there's distance? Yeah. Hyper's always um, had almost the opposite approach of most of the market. Most of the market's focused on influencers. How do we make influencers, how do we get opportunities for influencers? How do we get deals done? Hyper is more of a HubSpot, more of a sales force. We're about helping brands save time, save money, get the best ROI, automate everything that they can, and focus on being marketers. For that reason, we don't have any opt-in influencers in the Hyper platform. We have 12 million that we track regularly and daily to understand what they're doing. We don't have a stale database from three years ago. Mm -hmm. We want to know who's talking about getting pregnant, who has an audience that is talking about getting pregnant right now. Because if you're trying to sell a product to that type of audience, it doesn't matter what they were saying three years ago. Gotcha. Kids are already three. You could go sell them, I don't know, stuff for <laughs> school or something. But maybe I think, so, so if I had to sum it down into one sentence, it would be that we genuinely believe that influencers are a commodity. And what comes from that is that you can dictate the terms, you can automate activations, and you can easily replace influencers that are not performing for you. And what that allows us to do is then incorporate a lot of things from traditional digital marketing. The discovery process of which websites or which influencers you should be working with, the automation of content disbursement, because if somebody doesn't want to do it, no problem. The system recognizes mm -hmm. and just reaches out to somebody else and brings them on board. And then measurement of performance. And we're starting to get to a place where all these players who could never scale, because they're not going to do one-on-one -on -one deals, they need to activate 100 or 1,000 influencers automatically because it's impossible to do with one person. They're going to need a tool like this. And it's a very, very differentiated offering than most of the players who will offer you kind of a, a tool to one-on-one -on -one interact with influencers and keep record of everything that they've done, which we have as well. But it's not the thing that makes us different. Got it. Um, so, did you have a mentor, you know, throughout this? Yeah, I mean, definitely Charlie Fetterman uh, right. uh, comes to mind. Uh, he's definitely the guy that um, has been with us ever since um, we took the right turn, I guess. Mm -hmm. He's uh, very experienced. I don't know if you know his background, but he, he used to run Broadview, which did enormous amount, I think $100 billion worth of M&As under his leadership. Then he was near Barkat, who was the mayor of Jerusalem up until recently. Um, they were partners in a fund called BRM, and mm -hmm. um, Charlie led the first investment in a company called Checkpoint. It's one of the biggest successes out of Israel. Um, and he's an amazing guy, amazing guy to learn from. He could, he can, uh, he will, he's not a soft guy. You know, he appears to be like a very soft and sensitive <laughs> guy, but he'll tell you when you're, when you're, you know, not thinking straight. <laughs> I, I, I agree with that. Yeah. So what did you want to be when you were 15, if you remember that? What did I want to be when I was 15? Yeah. Um, I wanted to be a professional basketball player, though it was clear 
that would not happen <laughs> at a much earlier age. <laughs> <laughs> and this is not even in Israel. This is in the States. Yeah. <laughs> it's a much, much harder to be a well, professional player. I'll tell you there. what the thing is. I, I went to the Jewish day school, and there were 18 guys on my grade, and I was like the eighth best basketball player. <laughs> um, so I thought I was kind of good at sports until then, and then I went to the Israeli army, and I realized... I'm not very good at sports. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Is there a habit that you do on a daily basis that keeps you on top of your game, like keeps you focused? You know, it's the, I, I have two kids. That's, it's really disconnecting for two hours. I get home around 7 every day. 7 to 9 is when they, they shower, they go to sleep. That's their time. I don't think about the company. I don't answer emails. I don't do anything. I'm just with them. It, it gives you a, re- it's, it's more for me than them. I think sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. where it's, it's, you disconnect, you don't think about the stuff. you always, you always have stuff to worry about. That's all done. Nine, nine o'clock, they fall asleep. You, there's a pile of emails waiting. Yeah. It's going to be there tomorrow too, but you do it anyways. Um, so it's, I have the unhealthy habit of going back to it afterwards, but I do take that break. I think it's pretty unique. A lot of people just pull through. And you know they're, they're three and seven. Like like every day is is they know something they didn't know the day before, and it's a, it's a really great. It really is the highlight of my day, and I think um, um, gives me like this break, this mental break of stop thinking about funding, stop thinking about clients, stop thinking about influencers. I got that. I have four kids. Yeah. So I, and I, then I complain about Game of Thrones like, <laughs> online. With, you know, about the new other season, yes. Yeah. <laughs> with a solo water bottle, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> under, uh, coffee cup. Yeah. No, no, no. There was another one. There was another, oh, really? There was another gaffe in last night's finale. Oh, there was a wa- plastic water bottle. Wow. Yes. Wow. Those guys are really in a hurry to wrap so they, 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 <laughs> What not to do. Um, and so is, is there, on the productivity side, is there something that you do uh, that you suggest to founders to be more productive for ones who don't have kids? Yeah. yeah. I mean, from a productivity perspective, I think the biggest thing is um, stop working chronologically. This is a big issue for me. It's like I answer e- the last email I got. And over years, over a short time, I, I developed this system of like urgent, not urgent, and I handle the stuff. And I, first thing I do when I get an email, unless it's like a three-second response, is I just put it in the right library. And then I handle the urgents, and then I handle it. And that's made me so much more effective because, honestly, when I see the urgent box full, I'm not leaving. I'm not going anywhere. When I see the okay stuff full, you know, I'll, do the, I'll run through it quickly, answer the ones that I need to. Mm-hmm. But I have no problem going home with the not urgent stuff and doing that tomorrow. Or, or really on the weekend or something. So it gives you some more control over this endless, and, and you know, as a founder, you'll, you'll start getting one email a day, and then you get, and you get to 400, 500 emails a day, 400 of which, or, you know, 80% of which require nothing but deletion, right? Um, and if you don't start having a system to, if you let that drag you into it, you, it's a never-ending Minefield. Yeah. And so, uh, and besides the plugged in podcast, and for all those yeah. listening, you know, feel free to uh, like on iTunes and Google Play and Spotify and everything else. What other podcasts do you listen to? If you listen to podcasts. Yeah, I don't listen to that many. There was one podcast in Hebrew, unfortunately, that I would listen to, which was great. Um, um, I forget the name. And then I listened to Joe Rogan. I'm not proud of that. <laughs> Joe Rogan. He's funny, okay? He's got astute observations. I hear that. I hear that. Well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. I, I hope you enjoyed it. I did. I did. Thanks for having me. It's e- so much fun. Excellent. Love this episode of the Plugged In Podcast? 
head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you for listening to C-Suite Radio, turning the volume up on business. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.